0: Big Am, someone's at the door.
1: Hey, it's Neil Hamburger. Merry Christmas, Neil. Hey, guys, do you have a place I can sleep tonight? Oh, it's on Christmas. Neil, what happened to the car? Well, the car was repossessed years ago, and uh, now I have no place to sleep, just like the little baby Jesus. This is the worst Christmas I've ever had. What? Oh, cheer up, Neil. You're with us. Ken Ham. I thought last Christmas was the worst Christmas you ever had. That was. Just like uh, each each summer, the movies that come out are the highest grossing movies of all time. Every year. Well, every year, my Christmas is the worst Christmas of all time. Whoa. Can you guys reverse that trend? So do you think like, Yes, we can. Wait. We can.
0: So you're saying that every year is the worst Christmas and it gets worse and worse. So it's like sequels, like movie sequels. It's just more of the same but more and worse Hmm.
1: well cheer up because we got you a present a present that's right I haven't gotten a present in 21 years we wrote you a song yeah for you to sing on our Christmas album so that we could sell them that's, that's not a present guys we wrote it just for you you wrote it just for yourself to sell your album. That's right. If you help us on our album, we'll sell more of the albums. Well, I'll do what I can. I guess if you sold one more copy, and that would double the amount of sales you're probably going to have. That's right,
0: Neil. And you know what the other present we have for you is? Uh, a noose? No, a not a round? noose. Well, maybe something noose like, but a noose made of bright, shiny ribbon that's wrapping your free copy of our Christmas album that you sing on when it's all done and ready.
1: Uh, you can, uh, you know what? Uh, give that to the children's charities. No, the children don't want that, our- I
0: We've been doing some actual extensive marketing surveys of our demographic, and we found that this album will be marketed exclusively to people of no ages.
1: In other words, no one's gonna buy your album. That's right! So come on, let's roll the tape. Sing the song, Neil! But I don't know it. Just feel it. Alright. It's Christmas, it's all about feeling. <laughs> Christmas party. It's the Christmas office party. It's the office Christmas party. It's the Christmas office party. What's going on in the office there? A horny game of musical chairs. We've got beer and wine and a big bowl of punch. With lots of candy for us to munch. What's the Christmas bonus this year? A condom that lights up like Rudolph the Reindeer. It's
2: the office Christmas
1: party. It's the Christmas office party. It's the office Christmas party. It's the Christmas office party. Christmas office party who got loaded and told off the boss? See you Monday morning, 9 o'clock sharp he walks in tail between his legs all shamefaced and ready to beg it's the office christmas party it's the christmas office party it's the office christmas party christmas office party it's the office christmas party it's the christmas office party it's the office christmas party it's the christmas office
3: party You're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. You just heard right there, Canned Ham and Neil Hamburger with The Office Christmas Party. Canned Ham from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and Neil Hamburger from San Francisco teaming up together for The Office Christmas Party. Today on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with author Grant Lawrence, who's put out a brand new book to follow up to his previous book, Adventures in Solitude. His brand new book is titled The Lonely End of the Rink. So today, an interview with Grant Lawrence from... The Smugglers, and also, as I mentioned, the author of The Lonely End of the Rink. Right now, to prepare you for Grant, gonna play a bunch of tunes. Gonna begin with something by The Aqua Dolls from Seal Beach, California. Thank you, Melissa, for sending me Our Love Will Always Remain. Then gonna kick into something by Rusty Ford My Truck, My Dog, and and you, Rusty, I think, is from Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. then something that's near and dear to Grant Lawrence, the gruesomes, one of his favorite groups, one of grant's favorite groups, the gruesomes we're going to hear what's your problem, The gruesomes from Montreal, Quebec, and then we're going to hear the Schmugglers, grant's own group with Alan thick, and in an interview with Grant Lawrence. Author of The Lonely End of the Rink. But right now, to begin, here are the Aqua Dolls with Our Love Will Always Remain from Seal Beach, California on The Nardwar, The Human Serviette Radio Show. Mm-hmm.
2: It's raining, it's raining, I wish that it was sunny out, it's chilly, so chilly, I wish that it was summertime again, so down that open road But I need some freedom to lose that load And I love my stinky dog The things she'll do She rolls in garbage and chases cars I suppose we're similar in that regard But except for all that I, I only have eyes for you My truck is my oldest compact Sweet baboon. But except for my truck and except for my dog. I don't write poems and I don't drink chai But I swear, my darling, I love you up the wazoo There's certain things I can't do without Like drinking beer and catching trout, And above it all, my truck, my dog, and you My truck is my oldest companion My dog is my sweet bad But except for my truck And except for my dog I only have eyes for you Cause except for my truck And except for my dog I hit that small child Was a drunk at the wheel Or you Well I'm sorry that the cancer defense i get
0: are you my name is grant lawrence and i am a cbc personality which is what they call me now and i'm also uh, the author of the new book the lonely end of the rink confessions of a reluctant goalie and i used to be a chart topping artist on citr uh with a band called the smugglers
3: and we just heard a smugglers tune Alan Thick, And how does that all tie into the lonely end of the rink? And what was Alan Thick about?
0: Well, uh, Alan Thicke, uh, being from the Ottawa area, was uh, really big into hockey early on. And, and, you know, like a lot of people, he was into hockey. And uh, But he was also an entertainer. And back then, uh, he would go by the name A.J. Thick. So it's kind of prophetic that uh, his son is uh, well has done better in music than his dad ever did but uh his dad uh is a long alan thick is a long time songwriter mostly of novelty songs and theme songs and so uh back when the nhl would release uh kind of novelty records at the games they give all the kids a seven inch or something when they walked in alan thick Wrote a lot of those songs under the name A. J. Thick. So he wrote a single for the Boston Bruins called "Wondrous Bobby Orr." He wrote uh, a couple of songs for uh, the L. A. Kings and the New York Rangers. And then, before Alan Thick broke through into uh, Hollywood as an actor for television, he wrote the theme songs for all sorts of different. Uh, sitcoms like, uh, different strokes and, uh, the facts of life and a few others. So, uh, it's a pretty accomplished, uh, musician before he became, uh, Jason Seaver on, uh, Growing Pains.
3: And you actually were able to acknowledge this right to his face when The Smugglers won a YTV Achievement Award, didn't you?
0: Yeah, yes, that was uh, 21 years ago uh, when Alan Thick. That was at the height of his growing pains fame uh, in 1992, and they brought him home to Ottawa to the National Arts Centre to uh, host the YTV Achievement Awards, and that's the year The Smugglers won. And we knew, like, because we obsessively watched television, we saw Alan Thicke's name and the credits of, like, Three's Company and, you know, all these shows for writing the theme song. So we, we thought that was really cool because we loved a lot of those theme songs. And we brought it up with him on stage at the National Arts Center in Ottawa on national TV, and he did not even acknowledge the question and he, in fact he thought we were trying to, to quote take a shot at him whereas we were actually really complimenting him on his musicianship
3: you mentioned different strokes so that's what you said different strokes you didn't say three's company maybe he didn't like different strokes right maybe
0: yeah. Uh, maybe he's racist i don't know
3: now your book called the lonely end of the rink is about what if you haven't really said what is it okay. about just for people that don't
0: know it's about my conflicted relationship with uh, the game of hockey, uh, our sporting pastime that whole kind of thing of when you're born uh, into Canada and if you've got Canadian parents which I did from Toronto and Winnipeg you're just kind of expected naturally expected to to love and worship at the altar of the frozen game and and you know especially if you're a boy you're expected to to play it and and uh that it did not come easily for me when i was a kid i had a real conflicted relationship with hockey uh, but i've eventually come around to it uh, later in life so uh so that's uh what the book is about and and it's written from a, a pr- hopefully a perspective of humor
3: now, what hockey books are you up against this hockey Christmas season? You're well, up against quite a few, aren't you? What hockey yes, books are you yes. up against?
0: Well, I, I'm up against a lot of, of uh, hockey books. Um, in fact, uh, my publisher warned me. They said, you should not, absolutely should not put out a hockey book uh, for uh, in the fall season. And I said, well, why not? It's the perfect time. That's when hockey season starts. And they said... You're just going to get killed because it's a very, very competitive. All the biggest names will, will be putting out books, including hockey books. And so sure enough, there are a lot of hockey books out this season. Uh, the most famous ones being there, uh, Bobby Orr has a hockey book out. Uh, his first uh, uh, tell. there's been lots of Bobby Orr books but never one that he has quote unquote written and then um, our very own Prime Minister Stephen Harper has a hockey book out uh, so what I like to say to people is just you know buy the whole set and form your own team of hockey books so, you, so you'll have me as the goalie you'll have Bobby Orr as the defenseman and you'll have Stephen Harper as the right
3: winger boom But you have tricks, Grant, to deal with these people, right? In bookstores, you have tricks to deal with these people, don't you?
0: Yes, I do. Uh, I have all sorts of tricks. I I sneak into bookstores all the time, and I just basically rearrange the shelves. Because uh, my book, uh, if you look it up on, say, the computer at Chapters... Uh, The first one, Adventures in Solitude, it'll say we have one copy in local interest, which basically is in like the attic of of chapters. And then uh, you've got uh, my other book, um, the new one, Lonely End of the Rink it's in sports and sports is pretty much at the very, very back corner sort of behind the children's display. Like you need a map to to find it. And so what I do is I take my, you know, I always leave one copy in the section that it's supposed to be in. So I'll leave one copy in sports for the person that actually dutifully comes into the store, looks it up, and goes and finds the sports section, with the other copies, I strategically spread them out all over the store. So I'll take one copy and I'll put it on, you know, Indigo's Best of 2013, and I'll put it right at the very front. And then uh, there's a there's this there's this critic at uh, Chapters. Her name is Heather. It's called Heather's Picks. And I put a couple books right on the Heather's Picks table. And then there's uh, other special sections of like our stores, top 20. And I'll clear off number one, which is usually Chris Hadfield. And I'll just put my book right
3: there. And you were Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink. I mentioned the other books that are out there, the other hockey books that are out there. Have you met any of the authors? Have they seen you on tour at all? Have you seen any of their book tours?
0: Uh, You know, Bobby Orr did a a pretty extensive book tour, um, but his was mostly, he was smart, his was mostly publicity, and he'd stop in at chapters and do a signing, and the rules with his signings were you could not get in line unless you purchased a book already. Now, I come from the indie rock background, so I've been, touring across Canada basically trying to put on a show <laughs> which is which is uh, you know it takes a ton of promotion and a ton of work and and uh, but I don't have the you know I mean Bobby Orr is one of the most famous Canadians of all time so I don't quite have his draw to just sit in a chair at a desk uh, at a bookstore and have people line up around the block uh, That that's not I'm not at the Bobby Orr James Franco uh, level yet but uh i haven't run across i mean nobody really book tours like i do i i mean maybe you know maybe dave bedini did back a, a few books ago or maybe you know jeff Berner has a new book out he might be doing something similar there's a guy named joe weeb who put out a, a really cool book uh, called the craft beer revolution and he toured all the breweries in bc uh, which was a really creative way I, of, uh, of touring a book. So, but I, haven't, I don't think I've really run across any other touring authors. But I mean, I did a lot of the touring in December when it was just incredibly cold across the country, uh, breaking the old smuggler's rule of never touring in uh, De- December or January. So, uh, but no, no authors have crossed my path.
3: The book is for mom. What about dad?
0: Well, I dedicated, uh, if you remember, I dedicated uh, Adventures in Solitude, my first book, to my dad. Because my dad built uh, the cabin in Desolation Sound, which is where the first book is set. That's the summer book. And then this winter book, my mom was the real passionate skater. And she taught me how to skate. So this book is for her.
3: You open up The Lonely End of the Rink, and we're speaking here to Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink, an actual book, an actual book. Congratulations, Grant. It's pretty amazing, like two books, two books. I
0: know, I know. And and they kind of look the same. They have the same sort of... you know, design by Naomi McDougall.
3: And you flip them open. And at one page, it talks about Wayne Cashman's tongue injury. Well, yeah. People about that Wayne Cashman's tongue injury. Yeah.
0: Well, if you have the book there, you might help me with, um, there was this, this the the summit series is this incredible. Uh, you know, this is the, the series Canada versus Russia in, in 1972. And, uh, there's just like it's just an incredible saga because you've got these Canadians who are really a uh, real swaggering kind of starsky and hutch type guys with their plaids and their open shirts and their cologne and their cigarettes and their beer. And then you got these these basically these guys from the Russian army who were fit as a fiddle, uh, very skinny and lean, no beer guts. They wore helmets. And uh, and 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 they they had to go to basically ice battle with these Canadians, and there was all sorts of bizarre uh, injuries that occurred. I mean, there was the very the most famous injury of the whole thing was when um, I think it was in Game Seven. Went to Game Eight when Bobby Clark broke the ankle of the Russians' best player with a, a wicked slash. But one of the stranger injuries was uh, Wayne Cashman, who I believe uh, was from the uh, yeah uh, Wayne Cashman who was from the uh, Boston Bruins who had won the cup that year with Bobby Orr, and uh, he eventually had to leave I found it in the book here he had to leave the Summit series after suffering a bizarre tongue injury that required over forty stitches, forty stitches to his tongue. And uh, from what I understand, uh, he, uh, somehow, I guess, he's, he, he wasn't wearing a mouth guard or something. And it was a combination of a stick to his mouth and uh, his teeth chomping down on his own tongue.
3: What a terrible injury. I'd never heard <laughs> about that.
0: Well, that's, that is exactly why hockey players wear mouth guards, not only to protect their teeth, which is what most people think, but to protect their tongue. Because if you are, say, knocked on your ass in a hockey game and you're slammed down really hard on your bum, your teeth can come down onto your tongue like a guillotine. And if, if not wearing a mouth guard, your teeth can actually chop your tongue right off.
3: How about yourself, Grant? You're a goalie. You're a goalie, and you talk about being a goalie in your book, The Lonely End of the Rink. Have you ever worn glasses behind the mask?
0: No, thank God. I never have. When I was a little kid playing ball hockey uh, at at elementary school, I I would wear glasses uh, and and no mask and the ball, whatever we I guess we played with a tennis ball most of the time. So that was lucky. But it would constantly smack me in the glasses. And I uh, knock the lens off, bend the frames, knock the glasses right off. So now when I play hockey, I wear luckily wear contact lenses, and I have never had to wear glasses behind the mask. But I have seen other goalies wearing glasses behind the mask. And uh, I'm sad to say it looks quite pathetic, uh, especially when their glasses are constantly fogging up.
3: The injuries you talk about having as a kid in your book, like the kneecap, if modern medicine was around back then, would have you been so screwed up? Uh,
0: I don't know. I mean, my knee problems are hereditary. And I think most of my knee problems really occurred when I hit puberty and the growth spurts and my knees just would dislocate constantly. I mean, it was just awful, awful, awful. And the problem was is that uh, people in... Our our elementary school and high school thought it it looked funny when uh, my knees dislocated uh, because my knee, my, my leg, if you can picture it, would sort of go back the way like a a bird's leg is you know like an ostrich's leg you know how ostriches their their legs bend the opposite way of humans well that's what my knee would do when they would dislocate and and my whole body would collapse onto the ground in the hall or on the field or on the street or waiting for the bus or whatever and all the kids thought it was hilarious but i was just in the most brutal excruciating pain and I just have this, these memories of that pain associated with all this laughter going on around me, which made it worse. But uh, I think, you know, one of the big problems with my knees was that I, <clears throat> I did not do what was instructed of me by the physio. I, they, you know, they did the operation and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Dr. McNeil of West Vancouver, who once played for the Detroit Red Wings, did the operation, but I didn't do any of the follow-up physio. I didn't exercise my knees, and so they were like sticks for years and years, and it was just terrible. You know, it was my own own fault.
3: In your book, The Lonely End of the Rink, and we're speaking to Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink, are any of the teachers that are mentioned in the book Readers, have you got any feedback from them, or given them the book? And well, has anyone else written a book about your schools, Hillside or Irwin Park?
0: Well, okay. Well, for one thing, uh, neither school name is mentioned, so thank you for that. Uh, uh, so, I, <laughs> so Irwin Park and Hillside were were taken out. Uh, also taken out was all of the real names of teachers. So uh you know the the woodwork teacher like all the names are real right up until about a, uh, the final edit.
3: But I guess despite and the it, names being real or not real well uh, they're not real once some people put two and two together I guess have you got any feedback from teachers like oh I bought your first book Grant and your second book I think you're talking about me.
0: No no one has has said that yet but I believe the teacher that dealt with the glasses incident in grade two where I put my glasses on for the first time ever in my life during the singing of O Canada that teacher's deceased and I have no idea what happened to the chirpy little British woodworking teacher who dealt with another incident uh in high school that was rather violent uh but uh that that's exactly as that woodwork shop incident occurred he uh that teacher actually stuck up for me, and uh, and we, we would do terrible things to that teacher. We used to lock him in his office and, you know, uh, all sorts of crazy things, but uh, he stood up for me on that day.
3: Well, he didn't stand up for me. He ended up failing me, so I oh, guess you, really? lo- you locking him in the office probably made him angry and take it out on other kids. You failed woodwork? Yes, I did. I failed woodwork. <laughs> How do you do that? I listened to a guy tell stories about him traveling around the United States of America in the back of a boxcar and getting shot. It was just amazing. Listening in to the woodwork
0: class? Yeah,
3: it was just a fellow guy, student, and he told me all these great stories, and it was, I guess, funner to listen to the stories than to listen to the teacher.
0: Wow, so you, you refused to form a Henry circle.
3: Ba-boom! <laughs> On page! A- Grant yes. On page yes. eighteen of your book, you talk about the jocks teasing you, but by yeah. the end of the book, the jocks are on your team and at your command <laughs>
0: uh, i don't know we don 't have the, we I would say on our team, we maybe legitimately have one or two people that you could say, okay, you were a jock.
3: And a bit of background in case people are wondering, your team, you're not talking about the smugglers, you're talking about... Uh, the Vancouver Flying
0: Vs, and uh, it's a team mostly made up of people, like I would say it's made up of like 85 to 90% of, of players who were turned off hockey at some age, whether it was 10 or 12 or 18, uh, that, that just was like this game i don't know there's some something has gone wrong uh i'm not enjoying it. i'm not having fun and so they they left the game and and this the the team is about you know kind of uh reclaiming that canadian rite of passage of hockey and playing it again sort of on our own terms and yes there is you know maybe a couple of guys who Never stop playing hockey and who are very good and and who could maybe considered to be jocks. And I have often wondered uh, privately to myself, you know, I, I think to myself when I sit in the locker room, I'm like, geez, I wonder if these guys would have been the guys who would have teased the hell out of me when I was, you know, in high school or elementary school. But yeah, I suppose you're right. Now they are at my command. <laughs>
3: and they are sort of teasing you, except they're on the other team. And you can verify because some of the people you encountered earlier on in life have been on teams that you've encountered later on in life and those people earlier on in life were once that hassled you.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's been some of the great uh, Shakespearean glory of uh, playing in beer league hockey because those a lot of those uh, some of them uh, some of the bully guys that would really rain down holy hell on me I have uh, faced off against uh on the rink now I here why I call it shakespearean is because I knew and my team knew because I would tell them after the game but the uh, the guy who would terrorize me so much who was playing on the other team he never I would have I've yet to tell any of them uh, what you know the, the wins against them or the stops uh, the saves against them has, has deeply deeply meant to me to to them I'm just another goalie making saves or whatever uh, or letting in goals and they don't they have no idea what it means to me to stop them or beat them.
3: Growing up, you mentioned how you were bullied and you had to run a lot. Did you ever run track or cross country because you were always <laughs> running away from people? Yeah, it's
0: true. Um no, I I was uh, that's the one thing that uh you know, I was I was very small, uh but I had longer legs and I had torso. You know, you see some people with stubby legs and a big torso, well I had long legs. Uh and even with the bad knees, Uh, With my knee braces on, I could uh, dash very quickly. I was very, very uh, quick on my feet. And uh, that kind of saved me. Eventually, it caught up to me. But uh, it saved me early on from a lot of uh, beatings because I could wriggle out of a bully's grip and then I could just bolt and really fast. But no, uh, by that point, I was so turned off of gym and sports because i figured well these guys the 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 jerks in our school are mostly athletes so i just wanted to avoid them at all costs so i was avoiding gym i was avoiding any sort of organized sports like track and field or uh, if you know i remember the sports day you'd get um, there were i think four badges or three badges you'd get uh, excellence gold silver bronze or nothing and I think you, you, I would think you should get just something for showing up. And I, I remember having a drawer at home uh, that was reserved for that type of stuff, and it was a drawer full of nothing.
3: When you were younger, could you throw up on command? Uh, no, I c- couldn't, but I
0: did throw up quite frequently from anxiety. Uh, so I would just like, I just without any warning, just barf on a teacher, or barf onto my desk, or barf onto the floor, uh, just from just because of my anxiety.
3: Now, the anxiety, wasn't it all brought upon by choices your parents made? I.e., on page 20 of your book, there's a picture of a Band-Aid on your face. Who put right. the Band-Aid on the face? Well, Could you explain to people a bit about that picture and how it relates to everything? It's amazing. Yeah,
0: um, that picture is, the uh, that was about grade two and the Band-Aid is a mystery. There's a, there's a giant Band-Aid covering a huge uh, portion of my face and, uh, like, basically most of my cheek. And no one really knows why the Band-Aid is there, but I'm also wearing my gigantic uh, glasses, which looks like they, they could fit onto, a, you know, an adult, but I'm wearing them at 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 age seven. And that was th- – it was, for whatever reason – um, the coupling, like the knee, knee braces were bad enough because it, it showed a real, uh, you know, it, it was an obvious physical weakness. It's like, oh, something's wrong with that kid. But then uh, when the glasses went on, it was just like, uh, because that's the thing is, you know, kids, especially the alpha dogs in class, they, they look for any possible weakness in other kids so that they can prop themselves up higher to be leader of the pack so you know it might be a name that rhymes with something funny it might be color of somebody's skin it might be you know glasses or knee braces and that was the, the situation for me and it was just a weakness and i i get it now it's like a primal deep primal thing with kids but man did i get it hard
3: Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink, speaking to me, Nardward, human serviette here on the Nardward, human serviette radio show. How many pages in does it take people to laugh? For me, it was page 32. I laughed when you called Dodgeball an elementary school version of public stoning.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, gee, uh, I take that as, as a personal insult because... 32 pages in is a little bit, uh, you know, that, that's pretty deep for the first laugh. I would, you know, uh, a lot of people thought that, um, you know, in my first book, their, their first laughs were like in the prologue where the octopus attacks me. But 32 pages in, that's uh, kind of, that, that's not very good.
3: Well, actually, there's quite a long introduction to this book. And also, it's a lot thicker than your last book, too, isn't it?
0: No, it's not. In fact, it's actually about ten pages ten pages shorter than the last book. Uh, clearly, for you, it just felt longer.
3: Ba, boom! Still, page thirty-two. That was a lot quicker than the other book. I really enjoyed that. Oh, you mean the
0: first laugh in the other book didn't come till later?
3: Well, I just remember laughing on page thirty-two of your book.
0: Okay, I that was good. Right on. All right. Well, I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you.
3: Maybe you can tell people a little bit about the Subway Sandwich, just for old times' sake, right? Again, the Subway Sandwich story is not related to this at all. It is in a way, though, because I always tell people this story, and I tell it wrong. Like, I told the comedian Margaret Cho looking for a joke, but it does sort of relate to, you know, throwing up and problems you had in high school.
0: Well, okay, but first of all, you know that... uh, that this like it it wasn't me with the subway sandwich right
3: no it was a friend of a friend
0: yeah it was exactly it was a friend of a friend who who's now uh amazingly and i i think i've given you this context before but amazingly i think he or at least his company won an academy award for uh the the Philip Seymour Hoffman Merrill Street movie about nuns and priests i think it's called like Judgment or the uh, not the accused but uh, atonement or so- something like that and uh, and anyway but before he possibly won this academy award in production or whatever it is uh this guy this this particular guy lived uh in the Lonsdale area of North Vancouver and uh he was coming home from work and what he would do uh, as he was coming home from work on Lonsdale, as he would uh, stop in at the subway, and he would buy a uh, 12-inch subway sandwich. And uh, so he was walking, uh, and there was it was like another couple of blocks to his building. And he was walking home, and all of a sudden, he, he got hit with this feeling of nausea, like really, really strong feeling of nausea. And, and he goes, oh, man, I, I got to get home like right now. And then he he's like he's, he's basically at the front of his building, like keys in hand. and he, he says to himself, "I'm not gonna make it. I am not gonna make it to my apartment. I've, I've got to deal with this right now. So he, and he realizes that he has like he's about to have just abs- just a violent diarrhea. So he goes, Along the side of his apartment building, like where there's sort of bushes, you know, and whatever the whole—I don't even what any just you know—it's like just the side of the building, and he he does the ray dong chong, so he squats and he just lets it fly and and it's he's really in pain like he clearly ate something terrible at craft services that day on the film shoot and so he's he's squatting inside the building and and making this horrible racket and uh then he, he's he's done and and he's like well how am i going to clean all this up at least myself and he's looking around, he goes, oh, he thinks of his, of the Subway sandwich that's there. And he remembers, okay, well, there's, the, the, the Subway people always stuff the bag with napkins. So no problem, serviettes. So he reaches into the bag and this one single day of all days, Murphy's Law, there are no Subway serviettes in the bag. So he, so he goes, oh my God, what do I have? So he assesses the situation. He's got the plastic bag that the Subway sandwich is in. He's got the wax paper that the Subway sandwich is in. So he tries that, but it doesn't have the absorbent quality that he needs to, to, to clean himself up. So he's looking around, and the only stuff around him, it's like you know, like prickly hedges and stuff. It's not even, he can't even go Tarzan can't even wipe with leaves so he realizes that he he looks at his subway sandwich and he realizes i gotta use a sandwich the bread is the absorbency that he's been searching for to wipe his butt with so he gets out uh, one half of his cold cut combo and he starts (laughs) he starts wiping his bum (laughs) with it (laughs) With his dinner, his, <laughs> with his subway sandwich, and then, just in that moment, as he's wiping, <laughs> as he's wiping his bum with his subway sandwich, a side window opens, and his landlord sticks his head out the window and says, "What the hell are you doing? What is going on here? What are you doing with that sandwich?" And that's that, and then. Uh, and then uh, basically, he uh, he he, uh, he managed to avoid all of his neighbors for like six weeks or something, and eventually just moved out.
3: And then everybody always asks, "Is it a six inch or a twelve inch?"
0: <laughs> right. Well, as you know, Subway cuts them in half, so I think he still had half of a sandwich left for dinner.
3: Ba boom. We're speaking here to Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink, which does not include The Subway Sandwich Story, but maybe your next book, The Smugglers, will include The Subway Sandwich Story. Your book, The Lonely End of the Rink, as I mentioned, has a bit of bullying and heavy stuff in it. That's partly why, by page 32, I wasn't expecting to laugh. I thought it would be pretty heavy, because it's a pretty heavy book. I guess what I'm wondering, Grant, about your book, "The Lonely yeah. End of the Rink," is: yeah. Do readers who don't know hockey want the hockey stuff? I.e., did you have to put hockey stuff in? Does it turn off the non-hockey fans, or does it turn off especially people who don't like the Canucks?
0: Well, yeah, I mean the, those are two big challenges, and and uh, on an, you know the uh, the Canucks are f- for whatever reason. Uh, not very well liked across Canada, you know, like, they're like, uh, so the marketing of the book has actually downplayed the, uh, you know, so Douglas and McIntyre, the publisher, they've actually downplayed the fact that, you know, the, the historical backdrop of the book is, uh, done in three periods. The book is in three periods and each one, uh, Chronicles the Canucks' three failed attempts at the Stanley Cup in three different periods of my life, and you know because I love the Canucks and I've I've loved them for years and and I love the Canucks lore. But uh, boy, I mean these in this era of the Canucks with the with the ginger twins and with Alex Burrows and with roberta Luongo and Brian Kessler, there's people across Canada that think they're a team of you know, bitchy whiners and and they're soft and all the rest of it. And so Douglas and McIntyre, the wherewithal to downplay the Canucks angle to basically sell it more as a general hockey book and sort of trick people uh, into buying it. And then they, they open it up and they realize, oh my God, there's all this Canucks stuff. But hopefully they've been hooked in with the personal stories enough that they will put up. With uh, the Canucks stuff in the book. Now, the 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 back, you know, the the uh, I guess the, the negative side of that is that there are I feel there are millions upon millions of actual Canucks fans, long suffering Canucks fans who could easily relate to this book that actually don't know that uh, there's so much Canucks history in this book from a fan's perspective. And so the sad part is that I, I, I kind of, you know, possibly missing out on that marketing opportunity. I mean, I think uh, <clears throat> the Vancouver Canucks have like 3 million Twitter followers or something like that, and, uh, you know, haven't tapped into them.
3: However, on the back of the book, there's some great praise for the actual book. You have some hockey punks commenting on it. Well, namely Boyd Devereaux from Black Mountain, i.e. the Black Mountain experience. Didn't Boyd Devereaux meet the band Black Mountain? Can you explain about that? How did you get Boyd Devereaux to comment on your book?
0: Okay, well, Boyd Devereaux is my only NHL friend, first of all, and uh, the reason that I am friends with him is because uh, years ago, probably around, I don't know, 2006, 2007, when I was doing the CBC Radio 3 podcast, you know, I'd talk about hockey on the podcast, and I'd talk about, you know, various, you know, like I remember um, uh, Sebastian Jaguer won, like, the Consmite Trophy, and he let his cousin... In Halifax, sleep with the Consumite Trophy in her bed. And so she wrote me this. And, and, you know, I talk about hockey stories on the podcast. And Boyd Devereaux sent me an email. And he was saying, Hey, you know, I'm Boyd Devereaux. I play with the Phoenix Coyotes. Uh, I, I, you know, I love your, I listen to your podcast all the time. I discover bands from it. So I wrote him back and said, Oh, I can't believe this. You know, you're actual hockey player, you won the Stanley cup with the Detroit Red Wings on the two kids and an old goat line. Uh, it was the third line for the Red Wings. It was, uh, Boyd Devereaux, uh, and Pavel Datsuk and Brett Hull. I mean, what a line for him to play on to win the cup. And then, uh, and then, so he said, well, yeah, you know, every in Phoenix, if I'm in town, if a band comes to town that you've played on the podcast, I try to go see them and I will let them stay at my house old school style. And, uh, and so he told me that I wrote him back and I said, well, what, which bands like who stay at your house? And, uh, I said, you know what? I'm just going to have to interview you. I'm going to have to interview you on the podcast. So he agreed to an interview and I said to him, which bands? And he goes, well, uh, I remember Black Mountain played some small show in Phoenix, and I went to see them. And uh, I, I approached them after the show, and I said, hey, do you need a place to stay? And they said, yes. So uh, Boyd Devereaux let them stay at his house in Phoenix. Now, he did not tell them that he was a hockey player, and none of those, boy, none of those Black Mountain guys are hockey fans anyway. But they went over to his house, and it was really nice. And I got the story from Stephen McBean, lead singer of Black Mountain. And Stephen McBean was saying, yeah, you know, we were looking, you know, as you kind of do when you get to a place, you know, you're looking around and you're in the living room having a beer. And we just basically they started noticing a lot of hockey stuff, you know, like a framed stick above the mantle or, and then there was like, pictures of various hockey teams there was like a team photo of the uh of the Red Wings Stanley Cup win and then finally one of them said like to boyd are you a hockey player and he said yeah i am and they said well what's the deal and he goes oh yeah well, i play with the Phoenix Coyotes and at that time Wayne Gretzky was the coach of the Phoenix Coyotes. So Boyd Devereaux, not a lot of people know him, but he's kind of the Forrest Gump of the NHL. He was coached by Gretzky in uh, Phoenix. He played on the, the last team in the Oilers that was captained by Mark Messier he played in toronto with matt sundin and he played in detroit with stevie eisenman on that line with Suk and brett hall so he's been a, he's been surrounded by hockey royalty his whole career but isn't that famous himself and and so he became really good friends with black mountain and, and uh, ended up putting out a record By the bassist side project, uh, Matt Kamurand, who was once in the Black Halos, he had a side project, I can't remember what they were called, but uh, Boy Devereaux formed a record label called Waking Sound and put out Matt's solo record on vinyl.
3: Your book mentions a bit about bullying, as I keep saying. You have on one of your pages the quote, you gathered a strong group of friends and followers after your fight with your elementary school adversary. Now, what I was curious about is, you say friends and followers. Isn't followers like a 20th century Twitter word? Shouldn't it be like friends and acquaintances? (laughs) Uh, I
0: mean, I think once i stood up to the bully and actually landed a punch uh and but unfortunately after that i depended on my legs to get away from him because he would have killed me if he caught me um once i landed the punch and drew blood and sort of showed that uh the bully was was immortal um was a mortal, not immortal, but a uh, mortal being, you know, my friends kind of looked at me a little differently. And then these these other kids started, you know, they weren't friends yet. They were like followers. So, you know, I mean, maybe that, that's an inappropriate, uh, anarchistic term to have uh, in the book. But uh, they eventually became friends, and they formed uh, my first uh, hockey team of freaks and geeks and misfits and nerds and, and immigrants. And uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that they became friends. But at first they were just like, whoa, who is that guy who stood up to the, the
3: bully? What is the idea of having the chapters so short? <laughs> uh well they they're not
0: supposed to be uh, obviously short but um you know i i I don't know what the idea there there wasn't really an idea i just break a chapter when i feel like there is a natural chapter break i mean i remember the editor telling me that the first chapter i think maybe of the third period called hockey sock rock he said this chapter is way too short but one of the reasons that it's short is because i think in that chapter i talk about you know, playing, this is as when I'm an adult, playing ball hockey against bands that come to town, like Chicks Dig It and the Hives and uh, Sloan. And I went into great detail of those ball hockey games, like what the scores were and what happened. And I just thought, oh, this is so boring. So I just cut all that out and it made the chapter
3: short. Who were the punks in your high school and what stairwell did they hang out at?
0: Well, in... The the punks in my high school were I suppose there was a guy named Turkey who was a punk, uh, real name Clark Gatehouse, who's now an artist living in <clears throat> Pemberton, and uh, he was always pretty nice to me, but could 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 get angry. Uh, there was a- also punks in a band called uh ttsd who hung out in the stairwell uh there was a punk named uh he might have even been in ttsd bruce Sexsmith. he was always nice to me uh but yeah i think uh those were generally the punks they were there you know they kind of went for that uh death sentence punk look uh, the band not an actual death sentence where uh they kind of wore like Ratty combat jackets, ratty combat boots, black jeans ripped up, you know, kind of floppy mohawks that weren't that
3: well maintained. What words did you make up for the book, (laughs) Grant? Nerd herd? Did you make that word up? Nerd herd? Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm pretty sure I made up that. I mean, basically, if you're telling a story from a geek's perspective, you know, you can only use the word geek and nerd. Uh, and loser uh, so many times so yeah i i had to come up with a few phrases um nerd heard i guess i made up that phrase uh i'm trying to think if there's i mean i always come up with words that i'm i'm certain are words but you know my editor convinces me are not like i really like the word uh cons uh conspiratic like if, if someone is is constantly coming up with conspiracy theories, I like to call them conspiratic, but apparently there is no such word. Have but you? I, I I did try to put it in the book and, and they, they forced me to take it out. But there is a lot of words that I'll uh, put in the book that are turns of phrases from songs or lyrics or something like that. And the editor will try to take them out and I will go back and put it in saying, no, that's supposed to be that way.
3: Well, also, you say you got (laughs) stuck behind a Coke machine, but I thought in your high school there was only a slush machine.
0: Uh, No, there was definitely a Coke machine, uh, because our friend, uh, David Alexander Jones, uh, tried to pull a heist of stealing that Coke machine, but unfortunately he got it, I don't know if you remember this, but he got it wedged in the exit door uh out of the back door of the high school and actually got busted. So I got wedged behind the coke machine. He got he got the actual machine wedged trying to steal it and got busted.
3: How long were you stuck behind the machine? Was it really all day? <clears throat> uh it was no, it was
0: a it was a few hours, but what was incredibly painful was that I was upside down.
3: How did that happen?
0: Well, I, you know, these guys would grab me you know jocks or whatever i was as light as a feather uh, but i would try to squirm and get away and they would tilt the coke machine back and then what they would do is they would place me behind it against the wall and someone would sort of hold me by my ankles or whatever and then they would very slowly lean the coke machine back up against the wall so that it would pin me against the wall and uh, upside down and I had to be very careful because there's some sort of like uh, like any sort of fridge, there's some warming coils, as I recall. And I had to keep like I had to sort of wiggle into a position where my where none of my skin would touch those uh, warmers because they would eventually sort of burn me. But, uh, you know. It would be like I'd be stuck there because once everyone got into class, that the hallways would be empty. And this Coke machine was right outside, sort of between a stairwell and the uh, cafeteria. So it wasn't a high traffic area once classes were in. So eventually, I think I think I got freed by uh, uh, Vice Principal Rowley and uh, the uh, janitor, Mr. Shibata.
3: Did you really use the shower at high school? I thought it was optional. The problem was
0: um there there basically there was some complaint that came down from the at, at a staff meeting that said uh the kids after gym the kids stink. You know, specifically the kids like, you know, age 13, 14, 15. And so the the teacher said to the gym teachers Please get the kids to shower so they don't stink up our classrooms after gym. And that came down, and it was just absolutely horrific for our gym class. Now, it was a blanket rule early on, but I think uh, uh, from the other kids in my class that I talked to, I'm pretty sure they did – I I think there was so much trauma reaped onto the kids – with the showering that I think they did. uh, I mean, I know a kid uh, who went to our school who actually left our school because of that policy, like couldn't handle the showering thing. So left our school and went to a different high school because of that policy. But I think the policy was eventually dropped.
3: Grant Lawrence, author of the lonely end of the rink. Did you ever take a shit in high school?
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm pretty sure, yeah. I'm pretty sure I did.
3: And speaking of shitting, hot feces sprayed out my ass. The Smuggler's Tour in England?
0: Uh, Yeah, you might be referring to the sickest I've ever been in my life, which was... uh, Which was we had done this incredibly long European tour and Europe looks small on a map, but there are quite long distances. So we went like Barcelona to Marseille, which was like 10 hours. Then Marseille to Paris, which was another huge drive across the country and playing each night. That was about 10 hours. Then we went from Paris to London, which was very long as well with the channel and all that. And by the time we got to London, I was just totally exhausted and i got some curry in a hurry which a lot of people do when you're in camden town and i ate it and it just erupted inside of me and came out of every orifice you can imagine that night in some guy's apartment and he was like he was some he was like some bodybuilder guy because he was always walking around in he's like a like a ridiculous speedo or something and uh and I had to hug his toilet all night long and just, it was the worst night of my life. And I ended up, uh, the next night we had a gig in Wales, a town called Bridge End, Wales. And it's I, one of the only Smugglers gigs that I couldn't play. I ended up in a hospital with, and all I can remember is I had this Jamaican uh, w- female doctor who wore sweaters like Bill Cosby and had an incredibly thick mixture of a jamaican and welsh accent and i could not understand a word she said through my uh, i was sort of in and out of consciousness it was the sickest i've ever been in my entire life
3: and you were Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink. And Grant, right now, wanted to cut to Please Forgive My Misconduct last night, speaking of the experience you had in the <laughs> shitter in England. What well, can you tell okay. the people about this particular record again? We kind of mentioned it off the top, but there is yeah. an Alan Thick connection as well, right? Yeah, yeah, this is a
0: great, great... This is a really... Like, a lot of the hockey songs are kind of terrible. Um, but, like, for instance, the A side of, of this record, which is... Uh, the Hockey Sock Rock by the New York Rangers, including John Davidson, uh, current uh, GM of the St. Louis Blues, but uh, goalie then for the Rangers. But um, the flip side is the L.A. Kings, uh, a.k.a. Uh, Marcel Dion and the Pucktones, doing a song called Please Forgive My Misconduct last night. And it's a pretty good uh, pop song like it's got the really schlocky 80s production I think the singles from about 1980 and uh, but the, the actual bones of the song are pretty good and yes uh, yet to, to bring it full circle Alan Thick wrote both of these songs and you know I mean when I remember growing up watching the anytime that the Canucks would play the LA Kings uh, the, the Hockey Night in Canada would always sort of scan the, the crowd for celebrities and Alan Thick was often there sitting with John Candy or sitting with Martin Short or sitting with Pat Sajak who still has LA Kings uh, season's tickets uh, trivia fans and uh, so Alan Thick has always been a, a big uh, hockey fan, and uh, also uh, deep within the uh, the culture of the game when it comes to songs.
3: So here we go with "Please Forgive My Misconduct Last Night," featuring Dave Taylor, Charlie Simmer, and Marcel Dion by Dion and the Pucktones, aka Dion and the Pucktones on Denardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. <laughs>
2: You threw me out, you're cold as ice You gotta believe me, I was out of control I'll never break the rules again, cause you're my only goal Forgive my misconduct, Forgive I love you, little face up. That's right. But I was just a little forward, and you went on defense. Please forgive my misconduct. Last night, last night, last night, You caught me for holding. You stopped my every line, and I took my. Best. For somebody new, please forgive my misconduct. Forgive my gross misconduct, please.
3: still listening to The Nardwar, The Human Serviette Radio Show. Today I'm speaking to Grant Lawrence, author of... What are the author of again, Grant? Please tell the people, what are we talking about today?
0: Uh, the book is called The Lonely
3: End of the Rink, Confessions of a Reluctant Goalie. And we just heard right there, Please Forgive My Misconduct Last Night by Dion and the Pucktones. For your book, Grant, did your parents yeah. know all the stories about you and your youth in the book, or were they surprised? Uh,
0: they were very surprised that's that's one of the problems of uh about bullying is that uh kids often uh suffer alone because you know it's it it's shameful uh to be bullied and to be teased and picked on and and so a lot of the incidents uh i did not tell my parents and so uh they were rather shocked uh, to read about them when i wrote the book out i mean there were they've been stories that have always existed with me and uh i've told certain people about them but uh you know i mean there's one story where a guy uh in one night one night he uh steals my beer punches me in the stomach and has sex with my girlfriend um i'm not gonna rush home uh at age 16 and share that anecdote Uh, with my parents uh, because you know it's it's stuff that you just don't tell them and and uh the beer that that guy stole uh were coors light silver bullets that i had stolen from uh the fridge they were my mom's so you know i mean uh, i'd get in double trouble so yeah it was certain stuff uh, they were really surprised and and a bit um horrified and saddened to read about
3: on page 79 aren't you talking like a bully in the book yourself grant when you say quote I finally aligned myself with the lowest rung deformed ugly male creatures
0: uh, yeah a little bit I mean that's that's kind of the the thing is that um you know I uh, there there are times where you know I in the first period of the book to get back at certain guys I I turned the tables on people. You know, there was a fishing derby where I shoved a guy into the water at Dunderave pier and everyone laughed at him. And so you could say that I was the bully because I was the one who shoved him in. Uh, and, but I was just seeking a little bit of payback. And then, yeah, when I was at the very, very, uh, lowest stage socially of my life, uh, I did have to align myself with, uh, just the absolute lowest rung of, of the high school ladder. But but that actually kind of, in the later years of high school, that actually when when I became a little more popular with, with the smugglers and stuff like that, my band, uh, that actually kind of helped me a bit because I, I kind of had friends from... From every group in all over high school, except really, I didn't have any real friends with the hockey community. But if they were really, really serious hockey players, they weren't spending a lot of time in high school anyway.
3: What was your criteria for changing the names in the book? And how did you come up with them? Like Mr. Paulin, Facarte?
0: Uh, okay, well, I, I can tell you uh, how I came up with them. Um, Mr. Pollen, I got that name because uh, Pollen Sweaters is a little store in Lund that's also a bookstore, and they've sold a, a lot of my book, uh, Adventures in Solitude, uh, because it's based in Lund, which you know is right near Desolation Sound. Uh, there are two kids... Are named uh, the the two loser kids that I hung out with in high school. I named them Ficarte and Orifel, and uh, those are two names that I heard. Uh, our friend Bill Baker, uh, CITR alum uh, and uh, Mint Records owner, he said that. Geez, you know, he told me years ago when his kid was in play school. He said, "Oh my God, my kid has aligned himself. He's he's friends with these two twins named Ficarte and Orifel." Um, I was also friends with twins when I was in high school, but I didn't want to put the real names in, but I remembered, I'd always remember these two names for Carte and Orifel, So I just named them that.
3: Why did you let the guy that shot you with a BB gun join your band? Wow. Uh,
0: that's a really, uh, interesting question, except it's not that same guy. Did he give the
3: gun back?
0: Uh, no, I never saw that one again. Um, I, you're, yeah, uh, the, the last name is the same as a guy who eventually joined my band, but he, it, it, that wasn't the same guy. Um, th- th- there was a few really, really identifying traits that I could have put in. Uh, he, he was The guy who, who inflicted the BB gun damage on me was the uh, son of a high-ranking West Vancouver official. And I had that in the book originally, and they, they got me to take that out. But no, I never saw that that, uh, BB gun again. And that guy didn't, you know, I mean, really, I didn't see much of him ever again either after that incident.
3: And we're still speaking here to Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink. All about what, Grant?
0: It's about my reluctant uh, relationship and my conflicted relationship with the game of hockey. And also growing up. Yeah, growing up, and, and I mean, hockey is pretty much in this book. I mean, it's sort of like, uh, I call it my winter of discontent book. I mean, basically, any and every connection I've ever had with hockey is, is woven throughout this book, you know? So, like, one of my good friends in high school was Chris Monahan, and I had no idea. My dad figured it out. I had no idea that his dad... Was Gary Monahan uh, a, a longtime swashbuckling Canuck and Toronto Maple Leaf, and, and played for various other teams? And uh, yeah, so any any sort of connection like that, uh, I put in the book, including your connection with the NHL. Uh, your what is it? Your cousin Eric Nestorenko, who won the the cup with the Chicago Blackhawks in the sixties.
3: My great, great cousin, Eric Nestorenko, 1961. Thank you. I'm honored to be mentioned in your book, Grant Lawrence. I really appreciate and that.
0: Did you know that Eric Nestorenko was buddies with Roger
3: Ebert? I saw that. That's pretty incredible. And Roger Ebert shouted him out, I guess because they're both from Chicago. And he was also in the movie Youngblood.
0: Yeah. So, you know, it, and, uh, quite a, uh, apparently they, people just love the guy.
3: And he's still active till today. He's like yeah. over eighty and teaching skiing in Vail.
0: Amazing.
3: Because you know, we didn't get <laughs> a lot of money from the NHL so we just had to keep on working and working and working. And I understand, Grant, that you kind of got to get going right now. We'll have to yeah,
0: get- I, I do. I, I'm going to have to wrap this up. But, uh, you know, hopefully, like the last time, three years ago, uh, we could do a part two of this interview.
3: Yeah, we'll do part two in upcoming weeks with Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink. But before you go, to give a little hint of what's to come in this interview with Grant Lawrence, author of the lonely end of the rink hot piss the band hot piss comes up in your book a bit later on we'll talk about that when i talk to you next in part two but they have something about hot piss what how did they get their name like there's some sort of crazy way that they got their name hot piss and who are hot piss and how do they tie in with the lonely end of the rink
0: okay well the the guys from hot piss i've met it's this band from peterborough ontario and i i met them at the exclaim cup hockey summit of the arts and uh they uh are these crazy guys and i I thought oh that's a bizarre name for a band you know like and and partying with them one night at the tournament i said how did you get this band name and they explained that well it's named after one of our favorite party games and i said what you have a party game called hot piss and they said, "Yeah, well, what we do at a party is we put, um, we get everyone. No one's allowed to use uh, the toilet if they need to go pee. Uh, they all have to pee into a big, big pot, like a big cauldron. And uh, once the cauldron gets fairly full, uh, these guys from the band heave it up onto the stove, and they they put it onto full blast to get uh, the urine as hot as possible. And then once it's basically boiling." Uh, What they do is they take the pot off without oven mitts and they get everyone to stand around in a circle and they pass the pot as quickly as possible. Now, this is standing in the kitchen and uh, inevitably the uh, handles of the pot are are too slippery or or too hot to handle. And someone drops the the pot of hot piss onto the floor. And that's, you know. liters upon liters upon liters of near boiling urine pouring all over uh, someone's uh, kitchen and into the living room dining room down the basement stairs and this is what they would do at parties and
3: lastly 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 grant speaking of piss you're well familiar with celebrity piss jason Priestley's piss
0: Right, yes, uh, you're referring to uh, the time that Jason Priestley, uh, at the height of his fame with uh, his television show Beverly Hills 90210, and uh, now he has two shows, one called Call Me Fitz, and another one called Hollywood and Vine, with... Uh, terry david mulligan um anyway uh yeah he showed up he showed up at uh, one of our parties uh the, at uh, the, one of the smugglers houses uh, nick thomas he just showed up and uh, i remember everyone was really excited that he was there and i had maybe had a few too many and was a little too excited and uh jason Priestley um peed uh in in the toilet and the host of the party uh went in and said hey I can't believe this. Jason Priestley uh, just used my bathroom and the guy didn't flush. And I said, well, that's a blessing in disguise. He's a big Hollywood celebrity. So I went and got a a glass from the the kitchen and scooped out uh, some of his urine and put it on their mantle for for, for a keepsake of uh, a major celebrity being at their party so they can always remember
3: that. And how long did it stand there?
0: i'm not exactly sure
3: you know a few weeks or something and Until speaking it. of a few weeks tune in in a couple weeks for part two of Nardware to human serviette versus grant lawrence author of the lonely end of the rink and right now to go out of part one of Nardware to human serviette versus grant lawrence you have some tiger williams hansen brothers stuff queued up for us to play
0: Yes, uh, the Hanson brothers were an instrumental force in the book. They showed me that uh, uh, hockey and music could be intertwined. And I always really loved Tiger Williams. I mean, he, he would do outrageous antics on the ice like nothing we, we see today. And so uh, I love this song. The Hanson brothers tried to get Tiger Williams into uh, the Hockey Hall of Fame, but ultimately failed. But uh, this is one of my all-time favorite hockey songs.
3: And Grant, if people want more information on The Lonely End of the Rink, where should they go? Uh, they can go to my website, grantlawrence.ca. I sell
0: uh, personally signed copies on the website and we will mail them anywhere in the world.
3: Or you can go to Chapters and look for number one in Heather's Picks, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Available at bookstores everywhere?
0: Yeah, bookstores across Canada. Yeah, it's everywhere.
3: Well, thanks so much Grant. Here we go with The Hanson Brothers. He looked like Tiger Williams. Keep on rocking in the Free World, Grant Lawrence, author of The Lonely End of the Rink and do doo do loot doo. Doo doo.